Good afternoon and welcome to the People Planet Prosperity Podcast. We are joined today by Stuart Muir, CEO and founder of ResourceWorks. Stuart, it's a pleasure to have you on the episode today. Bye, Sean. Thank you for having me. So we're really excited to talk to you today. But first, can we get a little background on who you are and what you do? Well, I've been doing the Project Resource Works, which is a not-for-profit society for the past 10 years. We started in Vancouver in 2013 because we wanted to make a difference in making sure that public information on understanding the natural resource sector and when done properly, what it contributes to the Canadian way of life, because we felt that that was under-understood. It it was facing... uh, in the wake of a lot of major projects and investments coming to Canada over this past decade, there was a lot of turbulence in the public information, perceptions, um, often pitched opposition to just about anything that could be proposed that would create jobs, employment, and, and do so in a way that uh, protects the environment so we can all live on this planet for a very long time to come. And so that's been our work. And I, I started it not as the only thing I've done because You can see I've got a few gray hairs here, Sean. I have spent many years and decades in the field of communications and journalism. I was a a, a newspaper editor back in the days when big fat Saturday editions would land on people's doorsteps with a a thunk and everyone read the same media um, more or less at the same time. That's that's when I got started in it. And I went through all the changes and, and exciting changes and positive changes for this, but also just such interesting times to see the world evolve. So that's really the span of my life, which began in Lethbridge, Alberta, and I was raised in Vancouver. So I feel that Alberta and BC are really one place to me, and that's how I see the world. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's cool, like I, I, we've spoken before when I grew up in British Columbia as well, so being able to see the relationship between the two provinces, which at times is strained, um, but also can be something that's really, really uh, beautiful. So, why are you passionate about the topic of natural resources? Well, the more I've learned in my work, especially the work of the last few years with ResourceWorks, is that there's a part of Canada that often doesn't make it into the consciousness of the urban resident, which of course is you know, a very significant number of Canadians do live in the big cities in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver particularly, but also um, Ottawa, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg. You've got you've got a disconnect between that and the basis for the prosperity of urban life. And when you spend the time to go and sit with the, the people who are on the land, whether they're the first nations and other indigenous peoples or the, the working people, the residents of places. In my case, I talked to a lot of people in municipal government, in industry, you realize that there's something else going on. And it's something really special without which we couldn't have the way of life in Canada that exists. And it's been my purpose to bridge that divide and bring these story stories forward. You know, when I, when I was a young boy growing up in Lethbridge, uh, that wasn't really a big town, but uh, we got out of town. And some of my fondest memories from that time are the, the, the weeks and months we spent at the Ross Ranch down in the Hoodoos area on the, with the border with Montana, connecting me to that. Those are my earliest and my favorite memories with my dad and my mom and brothers doing that. That to me is a a special thing about being a Westerner. But for a lot of urban Canadians, and and now we have record 
immigration of people coming to Canada to build new lives here who probably will never have the kind of experiences that I had. So how can we reach out to, you know, these generations and these people say, look, there's, there's something going on here that you utterly depend on because that's what creates your job, even if you're in the city. Well, I really appreciate the fact you talk about your connection to the land and that kind of being an original uh, impetus for your interest in these topics. Because one of the things we love to address at uh, Young Canadians for Resources is the fact that people who work in the various natural resources fields in Canada, it's not like they're disconnected uh, from the places where these operations happen. Often it's, they live in the same communities, right? They, they go fishing and hiking, camping, and they raise their families in the same environments where this work is happening. And to kind of change that narrative that they're not people who don't care about the environment, often they really care about it a lot. And that's why you see that level of responsibility and resource development in Canada. So when you came up with the idea of starting Resource Works, what was people's reaction to this idea that you had? I think it was one of those things that there was instant recognition that, yes, this is what's needed. You know, we knew something was needed and I... I started out by canvassing the views of a great many people in in British Columbia, in Alberta, to realize that there was common understanding that there was a problem. I mean, you could point to opinion polling where um, even recently, you know, most British Columbians that we canvassed in a poll, I think two years ago, were saying that in 10 or 15 years, there would be no more fossil fuels used, which is clearly not even remotely close to the material facts here. Um, Yet people have these beliefs and that was true 10 years ago too. So looking at that fact said, what do you do? Um, You know, I think conventionally when industry has confronted this sort of situation, you'll see them say, well, let's go find as they should say, Madison Avenue, let's find a Madison Avenue solution. Let's go to the, the madmen, you know, the advertising world and, and throw a lot of money at them to buy some advertising so they can get on the airwaves and um, share what's really going on with, with 30 second ads, one minute ads, that kind of thing. To me, okay, if you want to do some advertising, great. But as a journalist, a storyteller, I feel that there's something deep when you are able to bring real narratives, real stories, told in ways that are credible, that people can relate to, to to your audience, because that's what creates change and engagement. Um, you know, I, I think that's a statement I've just made that most people would agree with. And, and that's the project that I sought to do. So rather than, you know, blitz the world with advertising, which I'm just not interested in, um, find ways to to build understanding that way and then let the chips fall where they may. The story is the story and the truth is the truth. So we've, we've sought to do that and do so in a way that is um, rigorous in its uh, interrogation of the facts. We're not out to be the shell or mouthpiece for anyone. We're really just here to get to the story that, and, and ensure that, you know, we, we can have a common set of facts, which is, in this day and age, it's increasingly difficult to achieve that in anything, be it politics or even, you know, sports for that matter. Um, but we've stuck to our guns. I love how you talk about the importance of telling stories. Um, we ran a, a, a workshop for 
young interns in the oil and gas industry a couple weeks ago. And one of the things we were trying to get from them is what's the story that you can tell people when they ask about natural resources? Because often we can get into these, uh, these fights about facts and details and figures, but people don't connect with facts and figures. They connect with stories. And that's what we were trying to do is when these guys walked away from our event, what's the story you can tell someone about your connection to the land and your connection to resource development that they might still disagree with the end of the day, but at least they understand where you're coming from. So that's really cool that that component of storytelling that is involved in this work beyond just advertising. So your organization's mission, and I'm going to quote from your website, uh, our mission is to reignite the promise of Canada's economic future by leading respectful, inclusive, and fact-based dialogue on natural resource development. So the big question is, how do we do that? Yeah, that, that's that's a great question to um, quiz me on that because it's it's what we have put up in our store window as to our purpose, and um, we wouldn't we we wouldn't be saying it, Sean, if we didn't believe that there was some some worth in this. In 2020, during the teeth of the COVID pandemic, I think like everyone else, there we were, our resource works team, our little team. There's not many of us. We were in our respective homes and we were on Zoom calls that everyone was discovering. And like everyone else, we were saying, hey, what can we do? We can't do our regular stuff right now, but we are ready to do our work. And so one thing we decided was to strike a task force on what we knew would be coming inevitably at some point in time, although we didn't really know when the pandemic would end. And that was the recovery of the Canadian economy. And I remember at that time, there was some lobby group that was saying, when this pandemic ends, we should uh, not use any more uh, oil and gas products than we're using right now in the pandemic, when the economy is basically dormant. Um, let's put policies in place that suppress the use of energy where they are now. Remember when uh, a liter of gas was 50 cents? I remember filling my tank in Edmonton, 50 cents a liter. That's because no one was buying it because no one was using it. Um, so there was a lobby group saying, let's keep it that way. Let's not, not so much keep it, you know, cheap gas, but, but, but keep it where no one's needed to use it because there's been this miraculous bridge to alternative fuel uh, or energy sources uh, within, you know, 12 months. It, it seemed far-fetched to me. It seemed counterfactual, but it was also the case that Media love the story. What a great idea. What if we do that? We'll come out of the pandemic and we'll also, not only will people be healthy and they'll have their vaccines, but we'll also have this post-energy economy. It, it'll be a miracle. And there's the mainstream media kind of lapping it up and cheerleading. That's a great idea. And I'm thinking, like, by what laws of physics could this possibly occur? Um, in in what timeline that, that someone thinks exists could... Could we um, have a whole different energy system in 12 months? You know, it, it, it's just, well, ludicrous. But rather than, you know, call out things and, and dismiss them with a single word, as I've just done, <laughs> I, I, I think it's far more valuable to engage in the public discourse and do so in a way that's constructive, um, that addresses what I've heard eco-activists call positionality. Positionality is where you will see someone who's your opponent pick a position to argue 
that's the strongest position they can find. But then maybe your counter argument will be a bit stronger than their position. So they'll, they'll say, let's shift over to this other argument. So there you are having the same spirited argument, but on a different issue because the positions have shifted. Now, maybe your position shifts too, but positionality to me is, is a, something to understand when you're doing the work that, you know, you're, you're doing Sean in bringing smart people together to look at the tools available because uh, you'll, you'll find that there's a constant shape shifting of who you're debating with and what they're talking about. And when you understand positionality is as an underpinning of this, you'll understand why it is so frustrating to stay ahead of it. Um, so when, when I look at the nature of the work, I, I think that, it is always in what we've done in resource works over the last decade, a case of being ready for the, the change in the debate. Cause it always, always, always is going to change. It'll be different a month from now than what it is today in small ways, maybe in big ways, it'll for sure be different in big ways in a couple of years than it is now. But fundamentally you'll still be seeing the same arguments out there. There's so many good things you just said there. And I, I want to circle back a little bit. So you talked about how we had um, during the, the pandemic, this this idea of, well, why don't we just stop using fossil fuels once this ends? And you had the media jump on that, right? Why do you think people are drawn to that narrative that we can just transition with the, the, the snap of fingers uh, to a post fossil fuel uh, economy? Um, and what, what can we learn from that? being from a different perspective on resource development. Yeah, well, I, I think that interests are always at stake here. Um, you know, you must always ask the question, you know, what's what's driving this? I'm hearing something, but what's driving it? Because it, it inevitably in human affairs, there is motivation, there's interest. And if you go about your life just simply taking everything you see at face value, you will have not an optimally successful life. You need to understand motives and you need to understand humans and psychology and, and the, the quest for a preeminent interest over other interests that one for one's ideas. Um, look, whether it's looking up for your own family, the people closest to you, you know, you have an interest to, to promote that. If you work for a company, you're an entrepreneur, you have an interest and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's what human affairs are based on. But to assume that other things you're hearing are free of interests, which is kind of what a lot of the discourse out there fundamentally rests on is, is naive and, and foolish. Um, so at the same time, I always wish to refrain from the more pessimistic or cynical view of human nature and other people, because I fundamentally believe in the, the honesty and the goodness in, in people to do the right thing, but we're always balancing interests. So, um, bringing that back to the matter at hand here, Sean, I, I think this is important because when I hear a statement, whether it's a statement ma made by a, a, an office seeker, a vote seeker, whether someone is a CEO who's interest is based on a quarterly to quarterly performance where the board of that person will judge the success or failure of a company's performance based on, you know, just a very narrow snapshots in time of, of financial performance. 
Um, whether we're talking about uh, communities that exist to provide services to members of the community, if, if it's a city or First Nation, um, you know, everyone's driving the interest. And, and so if you take that first and foremost, I think understanding the interest and um, all, always being aware that there is usually a story behind the story. I, I think, you know, that can be taken too far. I think sometimes the, just this belief, this suspicion that, you know, there, there's, there's another interest you're not telling me about, you know, I think we need to be, to be reasonable and apply logic and reason. And, and at a certain point, just accept that, you know, um, we have our interests, but we also need to engage in a good faith manner in order for the social contract to work. So to be always believing that there is some other interest that my, you know, the person I'm debating with is harboring where it's a secret agenda, you know, that's not helpful. I think, so I think what I'm portraying here is that we need to be rigorous and skeptical and intelligent, but also accepting that um, it's okay for people to have interests. Now, in you, if you put that in, a, in the context of what is the interest of someone, say you're um, a young person starting a career, you come out of a, um, a, a quantitative field, you're expecting to secure employment in, in um, a well remunerating position that will allow you to attain your personal ambitions for yourself. Um, you know, you, you want to choose something that's going to give you a good future, something that you'll feel good about, something where you uh, believe that you are doing the right thing. And I think if you're a person who's making choices right now to get into the Canadian energy sector, you're making a great choice because you're looking at uh, an industry, a field where we have regulatory settings for this work unparalleled in the world in terms of the quality and the integrity protecting the environment, we can be very pr proud of. Um, but you'll find someone who's attacking you for your choice and it can be hard to understand that. So um, the work you're doing, Sean, with your with your group is, is really important because I think there is truly a bedrock of, of uh, integrity to what these professions represent. Well, and I think we definitely share that that mission with you of trying to foster that respectful, uh, inclusive dialogue. Um, so I want to narrow in a little bit on on understanding the, to put it poorly, the other side, right? Someone from a different perspective on resource development. And one thing I noticed when I came to, to, to Alberta and was having these discussions was sometimes um, things were said and, and on the surface, they were logical. From an Albertan perspective, they were very logical. But... I knew that someone from BC was going to perceive it very differently, partly because it's just where they grew up, right? Um, tankers, LNG development, especially on the, on the coast, right? The coast is such a visible part of growing up in British Columbia that I think a lot of people are very protective of it. And we're having these interesting discussions about resource development, but we were missing how a British Columbian would think about development on the coast. Uh, and I kind of share that to, to ask, um, if I'm, if I'm speaking with someone from a different place, uh, from a different perspective, what can I do to kind of legitimately evaluate where they're coming from and not dismiss it, but then incorporate it into how I respond to them? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think most, uh, most people 
you know, if you go down and you see a mass of people, maybe you're at a hockey game or you're at Costco, you look around, you're looking at other people. They're not you. Um, you're at the center of your own universe and nobody else is, but you, you recognize that everyone is also looking at that from their own perspective. They are the center of, center of their own universe and they're looking at the, the sensory stimuli around them uh, as you are. And whether that's in Edmonton or in Surrey, uh, you know, we're in a, in a country where people are pretty homogeneous in terms of their, their views. There's not wild differences. If you look at polling, you know, I think Canadians share a lot of views on things, uh, regardless of where they are. Yes, there may be, you know, partisan differentiations that are often quite dramatic, but I think in terms of the basic values, um, someone moving from Red Deer to Langley would, would not feel that out of place, um, most of the time. So it's not like you're, you're talking to aliens or someone from Mars, if you are seeing someone with a different view than yours. Um, I think it's also important to differentiate the, the noise, the, the most high volume discourse that's out there and assuming that it represents, um, a lot of people because take a instance like LNG, if you were to say, you know, liquefied natural gas, if you were to say, um, what does social media have to tell me about the beliefs of Canadians on, on LNG? If, if, if you took that as your metric and you went out and did some research today, you might come away and say, well, it looks like Canadians are really divided on LNG. Um, if you look at polling, which is a more granular method of understanding people's minds, you would find something very different. You would find that, oh, most Canadians are really supportive of LNG. And in the words of one pollster who I personally heard say this in Ottawa this year, there is not a vote to be lost for supporting LNG if you're a Canadian politician today. You know, it's a very safe opportunity to support. Yet why is it that we see such ambiguity in, say, the federal government on LNG? Why, why, why do they seem to reflect more the, the social media division than the minds of most Canadians. And this, I think, is a key to understanding the issue because um, if, if uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you today from Victoria, that's where I live. And around here, I think the reputation of Victoria is that it's a kind of eco-conscious uh, tree hugger community, but actually it's full of Albertans and uh, it's full of British Columbians and people from all over the world who consume things for their life and confront these daily choices of transportation and travel and, and, and so forth, just like everybody else does. And I, I think uh, living here, the when I, when I go down to the beach, I look out, I see all the ships go by that are bringing the products of Western Canada to the world and bringing the world's products to Canada. They're going by there. A few years ago, there was a there was a shift in the speed of ships. All of a sudden, at different times of the year, these sh ships that used to go trucking by a couple miles offshore were going slow. And other times they were going at the normal speed pretty fast, you know, 18 knots. And what was going on is that there was a program to protect killer whales, southern resident killer whales or orcas, who are very sensitive to 
eco-location or echo-location uh, stimuli. So ships, propellers, noisy holes, that kind of thing. Uh, when they're going by, if they are feeding at certain times of the year, they're not there all the time in, in these places, uh, can be very disruptive. And so the maritime sector, under pressure from the Trans Mountain Project, where the messaging was that adding a few ships would suddenly bring the demise of the Southern resident killer, killer whales. Now you can debate whether that's true or not. Um, I, I actually think the facts point to a general increase in shipping traffic, not just oil tankers um, as being a reason why it's a very complex soundscape for the killer whales out there. And I think it's a good idea to reduce the sound when the killer whales are feeding. And that's indeed what happened. It was voluntary. It wasn't forced on industry, voluntary program. Um, and that's in Victoria. So I, I think as people who live here learned about this program and in Vancouver too, there has been greater acceptance that, you know what, we can have more traffic, whether it's container ships or bulk ships or some oil tankers thrown in or LNG tankers, and we can manage that. We have the technology and the commitment of people to make decisions, to do things that create a better outcome for the things that do disturb, and rightly so, a lot of people. You know, we shouldn't want to just make things noisier and noisier and noisier, always more and more and more for the killer whales, because that's obviously a stupid thing to do. So here we are seeing things. I think when people see that, it brings them away from, you know, hitting the button for that social media thing that you should, you know, pose that pipeline because it's going to have this cataclysmic effect when you see real things happening. Um, I feel like I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole and I want to come back to the main point here where we started and, you know, is, is there, is there a way to, to understand how things really work in the world and when it comes to opinion. So I think um, the thing to remember here is just simply that don't mistake the polarizations and noise of social media for a reflection of what's real in people's lives. Absolutely. That's a really good reminder for anyone listening. And I think it's also cool what you said, uh, which really illustrates that environmental responsibility and resource responsibility really is a partnership between people, government and industry. It doesn't have to be um, a punishment. It's, a, it's an opportunity. And that's cool that your story really illustrates that. Um, I just want to get into uh, the future a little bit here. So what do you wish that Canada's uh, policy regarding resource development and the environment looked like? How can we get there? And uh, what do natural resources play in creating a more sustainable future? Yeah, uh, I think in 2023, there has been a shift just in the last several years in Canada and our attitudes towards Indigenous involvement in the economy a fundamental shift and a good shift. Since 2019, our organization has been recognizing the need for a discussion around economic reconciliation. And there's other phrases and terms that have been used in the space to, to talk about, um, you might say how to close the gap between indigenous peoples of Canada having uh, a standard of life quality of life that's something like number 65 in the list, whereas 
non-Indigenous Canadians are up, you know, in the top handful of, of nations. How, how, how do we see the gap close for those who want to close the gap? You know, there, there are so many First Nations individuals who have the right that they should be able to exercise to live any traditional way they, they wish to. But there are also many First Nations who um, are expressing their desire today to have the same way of life or quality of life, at least, as as all Canadians. And only economic uh, engagement can, can do that. Uh, the past mistakes, which were essentially paternalistic in nature of a large welfare state for Indigenous peoples was a prison for the hopes and dreams and health of, of those peoples, just as the residential schools were here to help uh, attitude of a whole, um, you know, colonial era outlook on what this relationship was meant to be. That was wrong and wrongheaded and is being, is being addressed by the current generation. I think it's incumbent on those who are you know, we who are breathing today, that, that one generation spanning, you know, many decades, I think have a responsibility to put things as right as we can in the time that we have. And so I think that's, that's number one, because it, it will not just free Indigenous peoples to, to, to achieve their aspirations. It will free all Canadians to themselves be, be free of the colonial legacy of thinking that is holding us back in being the country that people think we are. Because, you know, maybe we're not the country we think we are, but we still we still want to be that country um, in, in every way. So this is an opportunity that in a direct sense, you might say, well, what has that got to do with uh, natural resources? Well, it has everything to do with natural resources because the land base of Canada, all of it. And if you look at British Columbia, which I know best, more than 100% of the land is claimed. You might, you know, because there's overlapping claims, um, of territorial claims by First Nations in British Columbia. And, you know, similar thing exists elsewhere. Um, the, the way in which we negotiate a future that uplifts everyone is going to be the key. And distributing resources and there's a phrase two-eyed seeing that I hear where those who are working in First Nations, whether they're landmen or project proponents or regulators, you're going to need to employ or be aware of the idea of two-eyed seeing where you have two eyes. One eye is seeing things as you would from the perspective that you have been trained in, but the other one is seeing the world through indigenous and indigenous eye and do so at the same time, which is really where the art form is. Um, and and I think for, to be successful in anything, whether you're building a hydrogen hub or a pipeline or um, a refinery or a, a, anything, I think you will be the most successful in your career if you, from the very start, are understanding and embracing that. So that's really the key. Well, that's a very powerful message there, an important one for everyone to hear. So I want to close off with a last question. For any people listening today, they're asking, okay, well, how do I go forward? Where should I learn more? Where should I grow to become better at having these conversations? What's your advice? Well, I think if you've gotten to the point where you're engaged in this enough to be listening to this now and participating with your group, 
then you already have the the toolkit you need. But I think you should stay informed um, of of current events. I would uh, I would subscri subscribe to um, news outlets. I'll give you an example of what I do to stay informed. Every day I subscribe to uh, the Financial Times, to Bloomberg, to The Economist, to The New York Times, to The Globe and Mail, to The Post Media Newspapers. Um, I subscribe to um, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's probably more than the average person is, is going to subscribe to. And I read them all. I, I read all of these sources. You know, in this day and age, even more so with the effects of Bill C-18 that has left Canadians bereft of news in their Facebook and Instagram feeds, um, there is, I would say, an information aristocracy and then everybody else. And those who are part of this information aristocracy are the ones who go out of their way to be well-informed, to challenge themselves in what they're reading and taking on board and are probably paying for it. They're paying money. If you're aware of what it costs, uh, the, the publications I listed that I subscribe to, I, I spent a lot of money on subscriptions. And, and if I didn't do that, I would not be reading the high grade information that um, one needs to have access to, to understand the world. So uh, I don't think everyone should go and, you know, d d subscribe to everything I do, but maybe there's one thing you can, you can plug into. I subscribe to a lot of other things too, like, uh, but, but, uh, um, that, that, that's important being fact-based. One of the best investments I've made in information is my subscription to, uh, a substack called Doomberg and they have regular posts that get into the material facts of things like energy transition, where if you listen to their, their podcasts or read their regular newsletters, you realize there's a, an enormous gulf between the the real fact set on the issues of today and the the sort of dominant discourse that you hear in social media. So if you want to carry yourself out into the world in, in, in your work, in your life, <clears throat> you want to be informed. And those are a few ways to do that. Um, there's other things I would take on board. To, there's a, a writer, a scholar by the name of Vaclav Smeal. He's written a book a year for most of his career, and he's now in his in, into his 80s. Uh, he, his book in 2022 was called How the World Really Works, which posited that just four materials explain modern civilization, those materials being steel, plastic, cement, and ammonia. If you understand those, you can understand why civilization is what it is. You can also understand why we are so inextricably connected to fossil fuels and other materials in our life. And these easy prescriptions, oh, just get off fossil fuels, are just in, in, impossibly ambitious things to say if you, if you look at how things really work. Um, read these books. Get these authors onto your, your list of essential reading. Follow these current events publications, magazines, newspapers, and be on top of things because there's nothing worse than someone with stale talking points. I, I just find it so boring when I'm, I find myself in, in this discussion with someone and I realize that they're just rehashing something that was debunked a year ago. Um, why am I wasting my time in this discussion? I want, I'd love to have a discussion with someone I disagree with who's as informed as I am. That would be exciting to me. Hmm. 
Well, to our listeners, I think the key takeaway here is stay informed so that you can have those those sometimes tough conversations, but they're important to have. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. To our listeners, that was Stuart Muir, uh, CEO and founder of ResourceWorks. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sean.